Hello, I'm Zeb Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their journey to advance patient-centered, consumer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Uh, folks, our discussion today will focus on delivering value-based health care, what has been termed proven care by the Geisinger, Geisinger Health System. And uh, I feel very, very privileged to have a guest on this show, Dr. Glenn Steele, who, amongst many other accomplishments, has recently co-authored a book with Dr. David Feinberg, the current president and CEO of Geisinger. The book's called Proven Care, How to Deliver Value-Based Health Care the Geisinger Way. Uh, Dr. Steele currently serves as the chairman of XG Health Solutions, an independently operated venture that was launched by the Geisinger Health System. Uh, the purpose of XG Health Solutions is to assist healthcare organizations uh, create value and improve quality using population health data analytics, care management, and advanced uh, health informatics technologies. Uh, Dr. Steele is the former president and CEO of the Geisinger Health System. He held that position from two. 2001 to 2015. Geisinger, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, is an integrated health service organization located in central and northeastern Pennsylvania. It is nationally recognized for its innovative care models. And I couldn't begin to say uh, enough about the Geisinger health system. I've been following Geisinger for at least uh, 15 years or so. And when I look to the future of healthcare and uh, and where we should be heading, I've always turned to Geisinger, and I'm sure we'll have a chance to get into that a bit more. In terms of Dr. Steele's background, um, uh, earlier on in his career, he served as the William V. McDermott Professor of Surgery at the Harvard Medical School. He was president and CEO of the Deaconess Professional Practice Group and chairman of the Department of Surgery at the New England Deaconess Hospital. He's been a past chairman of the American Board of Surgery, a past president of the Society of Surgical Oncology, and a member of the National Academy of Medicine. In addition to his medical degree, uh, Dr. Steele has a doctorate in microbiology and has published more than 500 scientific and professional articles. He's been named consecutive times to Modern Healthcare's 50 Most Powerful Physician Executives in Healthcare, Modern Healthcare's 100 Most Powerful People in Healthcare, and Becker's Hospital Review, 100 Nonprofit Hospital Health System CEOs to No List. Uh, Dr. Steele, I, I can't say this enough. It is truly a, a privilege to be able to have a, a chance and opportunity to speak with you today. How are you? I'm fine, Zev. It's uh, it's my pleasure to to talk to you. Well, thank you. So I have to I have to tell you, uh, Dr. Steele, I, I in in preparing for this uh, dialogue with you, um, I, I discovered that there are probably four interviews I'd love to have with you. The first is, to, <laughs> I know, well, at least four to cover your amazing legacy and portfolio of accomplishments at Geisinger. The second is to talk about XG Health Solutions. The third is to talk about your current work in, with the Health Transformation Alliance, and fourth. You know, just in reviewing uh, all the material I covered over the past couple of weeks, I would love to just talk to you and learn more about Dr. Glenn Steele, the person and the professional himself. So I'm, I'm hoping we'll have a, a, another chance. But for today, we're going to stick with, I think, uh, really talking about value-based health care, improving care, if that's okay with you. Terrific. Terrific. So, so before we get into the solutions, um, I really want to sort of lay a, a platform or a, a groundwork in terms of as this, as the CEO of Geisinger Health System and now as the chairman of XG Health Solutions and your work with Health Transformation Alliance, 
what is the or what are rather the problems in healthcare as you see them that you have been trying to solve for a number of years and that you're currently working on? What what, what is driving you? What is the as as Clayton Christensen says from the Harvard Business School? What's the job to be done in healthcare? I thought the Geisinger uh, model, which which was composed of not only a, a group of providers uh, that encompass both hospital-based as well as uh, as primary care, uh, but also um, uh, included the, uh, a huge payer, uh, I thought that that was a very interesting model to see whether payer and provider could figure out how to work together uh, to... Uh, to bring a, a better health status over time, uh, and and one of the you know one of the great advantages we had, uh, in addition to the fiduciary with both uh, payer and provider in it, was that our demography was very stable. So we were responsible when I started for about three million uh, uh, individuals in our service area, and and a huge uh, percentage uh, of those folks were getting care from us, but they were also insured. Uh, by one or another of our insurance products. So, you know, rather than having this kind of antipathy between payer and provider, which is what I experienced in most of the rest of my career in healthcare, it, it occurred to me that that maybe we could align the incentives. We could create a uh, uh, an information flow that, you know, that, that could actually include both claims uh, data and analytics on claims data side, plus the healthcare delivery uh, data and, and the and the data warehousing and, and the analytics on the on the provider side, uh, and really attack total cost of care and attack total cost of care because we were doing better uh, uh, in chronic disease management, for instance, uh, and keeping people uh, from having to be admitted uh, over and over again. So it, it was, uh, you know, and again, it was it was recognizing what was special about Geisinger, the market, the fiduciary structure, the demography, and thinking about, uh, thinking about attacking the inefficiencies in care uh, in a fundamentally different way. Mm -hmm. So, so at Geisinger and in your current work now, if you have to list the top two or three major problems that you're trying to solve for, what, what would they be? Oh, inappropriate, uh, uh, inappropriate uh, utilization. Uh, I mean, I, I, I became convinced that in every high-frequency caregiving episode, there was somewhere between 30 and 45 percent of utilization that was either, uh, either uh, outright uh, not indicated or was only uh, ambiguously indicated. Um, and and if, if you could do away with unnecessary or even hurtful stuff, uh, you, you basically, you know, basically were uh, emancipating a huge amount of value. So that's number one. Uh, number two, when there was an absolute indication for a test or a procedure, uh, particularly when it was a complex intervention, um, the second opportunity was, was to to try to get rid of unjustified variation, what I, you know, what I would call seat of the pants medicine, so that there would be a default best practice for everything that should happen for every patient along that entire acute episode. So that was, you know, that was the second area where the, the value should be emancipated. And the third is once you would have an intervention to really question how and where the rehabilitation should be done to make it most convenient uh, for the patients 
post-acute and to make it most efficient. I think those were the three major compartments uh, where where value was was to be uh, uh, emancipated. That's really I, I, that makes so much sense. It, it, you know what strikes me about this? So you you had this realization uh, over a decade ago um, and began working on this, and um, and yet I, I would say, and I could tell you, I had conversations uh, as recently as this morning where these same issues. Uh, surfaced as being the top uh, problems in healthcare today. So it it seems like it hasn't changed. You just saw it coming and realized this was an area, as you say, to emancipate value. You just saw it way ahead of most of us. Is that, I mean, do you still see those as, as the main issues that you're working on today? Uh, absolutely. And and what we're doing today is, is, uh, is trying to scale a lot of what we did at Geisinger. I mean, the big issue, I mean, I've gotten to the point now where I think innovation is a heck of a lot easier than scaling. <laughs> and, uh, and so we're, do, we're doing scaling experiments now, both through XG Health Solutions as well as through uh, Health Transformation Alliance. Well, I'm, I'm going to come back to the scaling because that um, I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm really, really glad you said that uh, about uh, the challenge of scaling and even comparing to innovation. But before we get there, could you uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the proven care, both the proven care work you did in the hospital as well as the chronic care work? And what, what were some, like, what is proven care? What are the essential components of it? What makes a service or offering so-called proven care? Well, you know, it, it, the first, I think the first, uh, uh, the, the first really concrete example, uh, and, and it goes back almost a decade and a half, uh, w- was looking at uh, looking at how our patients at Geisinger uh, with uh, with anemia, um, a low blood count, uh, how how those patients were cared for before and after we re-engineered the entire process. Uh, now the most you know the most usual cause for anemia, at least in our population of patients, was chronic renal disease. And before we actually looked at, at how these, these folks were cared for, who cared for them, uh, what, you know, what the standard or the default best practice would be, um, you know, the, the, patients, the patients were treated mainly in the offices of the nephrologists, and they were treated in the offices of our nephrologists uh, because, because renal disease was their, their top issue. But anemia was, you know, was a was a very uh, a very frequent uh, 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 kind of co-traveler, um, and um, we uh, we did an analysis and found out that of our four thousand or so patients with chronic anemia, um, there were at least twenty to twenty five percent of that group that did not need. Uh, uh, erythropoietin. Uh, EPO, as you're probably aware, was one of the first very successful and relatively expensive biologicals uh, that, you know, that was shown to increase red blood cell count. But it also does a few other things. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're of a certain age, i.e. older, if you've got cardiovascular issues, uh, if, if, you, if you're given EPO, there's a certain chance that you're going to have complications from your cardiovascular issues. And, and, and if 25% or so of our overall group of patients could be just as well treated with iron 
your, your number, you, you, first of all, you're avoiding those, those uh, cardiovascular complications. And secondly, you're, you're going, you know, you're going to a treatment that costs, you know, a dollar fifty or a dollar seventy-five as, as, as opposed to between two and three thousand bucks. So that's a, you know, that's a very concrete, and it was an early example. Now, in order to get default best practice, in order to order to find out who needed to be treated with EPO as opposed to iron, uh, you know, we we had to re we totally re-engineered how and where our patients. Uh, were treated with you know with with either iron or EPO and 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 we we created best practice algorithms. Uh, we we found that docs don't do well with algorithms. They can supervise algorithms. They can supervise uh, the uh, the creation of of centralized clinics for treatment. Uh, but but it's much better than having you know each nephrologist decide in his or her office whether a patient is going to need to have EPO or iron. So that was a, that was a first example. Um, and I can go on with, with lots of other examples probably for a week. Well, you, at least from reading through your book, I didn't realize there were over 20 proven care uh, algorithms um, or pathways that uh, Geisinger's created. Um, and and they, they're both in surgical pathways. Uh, I, I, the classic and the first one I remember reading about uh, well over a decade ago was about cabbage, uh, the bypass surgery. That, that was, I mean, that really blew me away when I first read about it, how you'd gotten, uh, you know, all these, uh, cardiologists and heart surgeons together and used evidence-based, uh, you know, medicine or whatever, uh, was at, at your disposal and really came up with one way, one approach, uh, before surgery, during surgery and after surgery and you got everyone to agree to it. And um, will, will you tell it? What, what was the, in that case, what, what value did you create? As you would say, what value did you emancipate through creating uh, such a protocol for, for teams, not just individual surgeons, but for entire teams? Well, I mean, the reason that we started with uh, cardiology and cardiac surgery was, uh, number one, we had really great leadership. And we also had really good outcome. So it wasn't like we were trying to, you know, trying to take something from, from really bad to, you know, to, to good. We we were we were really good, and 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 Pennsylvania uh, had a uh, an external uh, set of metrics looking at both quality as well as cost, and and so again, I wanted to start where I had good leadership. I also wanted to start where the uh, discipline uh, uh, itself, whether it was cardiology or whether it was the Society of Thoracic Surgery, the cardiac surgeons, they had already sta established um, uh, criteria which they felt uh, should be applied uh, for every step along the way from beginning to end in a patient who needed to have a cabbage or needed to have an interventional cardiac uh, uh, procedure. It's just that no one had ever baked in all of those uh, expected uh, 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 standards uh, into the entire episode. And what, what we conceived of uh, in our discussions with, with our men and women involved is, could we, could we bake in uh, a series of best practice defaults for every patient uh, in a way that other really good institutions, you know, that had a different sociology and a, and a different structure would find very difficult to do. Uh, so we, we try to take advantage of our own unique structure and sociology to do something that other, you know, really well-trained, highly productive, extraordinarily committed men and women couldn't do. 
What would be our advantage at Geisinger? And then the question was, if we were able to do this, you know, not, not doing it as cookbook medicine, not, you know, not turning our men and women into robots. There was always an escape if there was a good reason to deviate. But if we could do best practice for every step along the way, would the outcome be, number one, better, and number two, less expensive? And, uh, you know, that was, and that was, you know, that was the start. Now, the other, I mean, and it wasn't as if, you know, we had, we couldn't just take stuff off the shelf and bake it in. We had to discuss it. We had to create uh, uh, options for men and women to deviate as long as they could just justify deviating from the, you know, from the, the defaults. Uh, uh, in a, in a real time manner uh, to their colleagues, um, but that was you know that was that was the beginning. Now after we did all that, uh, if you know we we tried to create the sexy packaging. So the sexy packaging was the warranty, the mm -hmm. single price, including us taking financial risk for any complications over a period of time, and it was the sexy packaging that got all of the uh, publicity. But the really important core was re-engineering to default best mm -hmm. practice. And in terms of outcomes, what did you see improve both in the in in, in any of the proven care work that you did? What were you seeing, in fact, uh, quality, safety, costs? What were what were some of the benefits of of all that work? Well, for the for the uh, cabbage, uh, which was the initial, uh, we ended up. I mean, we had a, we had a very good mortality rate even when we started. Uh, but we, we got, I mean, we got as close to zero mortality as, as you could possibly do. I mean, anytime you're dealing in human, you know, in human medicine, you're, you're going to have issues that are, you know, that are bad outcome. And, and, uh, and, and, but, but we went, I, I can't remember the actual number, but we went from a relatively low mortality rate, uh, severity uh, stratified, to an incredibly low mortality rate. So that's number one. Number two, we saw a decreased length of stay. Uh, number three, we saw decreased readmissions. And number four, when you looked at the contribution margin, uh, that is the cost for us in taking care of these folks, uh, the cost went down, and so our contribution margins went up. And, and that was, you know, that was, uh, the, now the bet that we made in terms of the warranty was as follows. Uh, between our own payer and our provider, we looked at three years worth of uh, of uh, cabbage uh, coronary artery bypass before we re-engineered. And we looked at the costs, uh, including the costs of any complications that we subsequently took care of uh, in, a, in a period of 90 days. Uh, and, and then we, we said to our insurance company, we will put a single price on this, which will be 50% or one half uh, of the uh, uh, of the cost. So we basically had to improve by a factor of two to break wow. even. Wow. And we did. That's impressive. I, I think the, I, I remember again, reading about this as, as this, these were coming out and um, all, all along the way. And the most striking thing to me was the reliability that you built in. I mean, uh, you know, reliability is something we've heard about in other industries, but uh, to my uh, mind and my reading, it was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that in healthcare bar none, uh, that level of uh, confidence in, in, in your reliability. Yeah, well, you know, there, there, were, two, uh, there were two precedents. They, they, weren't, they weren't quite the same. But 
um, there was uh, something called a nor- the uh, Northeast uh, mm-hmm. Cardiovascular uh, 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 Group Consortium, uh, and they had attempted to do something. It was inter it was inter inter institutional, not within a single institution. And then the VA uh, Surgical uh, uh, Study Group uh, uh, actually. Uh, Probably almost 20 or 25 years ago. Again, it, it, I think it was, uh, it was centered in Boston, but they attempted to do something uh, very similar for a number of their interventions. But it wasn't quite as it wasn't quite as formalized or systematic, and it didn't have this kind of sexy uh, single price uh, warranty packaging. Right. How about uh, turning to the proven health navigator model in primary care? Um, can you can you describe that a little bit in terms of some of the critical features, components, and what do you think some of the benefits uh, you realized uh, were in the outpatient uh, primary care setting from that? Well, you know, our strategy after 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 we actually gotten our operating uh, operating issues uh, under control, and that took about two and a half or three years when I first got there. Um, but but once we once we were doing well operationally, um, we actually. Uh, decided as a family that innovation would be our top strategic priority. Mm-hmm. So, so the top down, and there, there were a number of other, uh, there were about three or four strategic goals, but innovation was our top goal. And, and so from top down, we insisted that every high frequency, high cost uh, uh, care uh, episode, we, we, would, we would ask our men and women to look at that and see whether there was a, a fundamental way of re-engineering towards higher quality and lower cost. And it turned out, um, and so it was a bottom-up uh, detailing of how each of, a, of the disciplines or each of the service lines, because a lot of our we ended up evolving towards multidisciplinary service lines, each one of those would decide for themselves what their goal should be over a period of usually uh, three years to five years. And it turned out our community practice um, was probably the most innovative of all of our service lines. And we were spread out over Kingdom Come. We, we you know, we, we covered, I think, uh, 42 of the 47 counties in, in Pennsylvania. And, and, uh, and they, we were all connected with Epic because Epic actually got installed in 1995. And that, that helped us out a lot. Um, uh, because everything was translated into a single, uh, a single electronic record and eventually went into a data warehouse and we could analyze who was doing what. But our community practice decided to do two things. They decided they wanted to take a prevalent chronic disease, and we started with type 2 diabetes. And they, wanted, they, they decided they wanted to take, Again, off-the-shelf best practice. What should happen to every type 2 diabetic every time? Uh, and, and, and how quickly, if, if we went from our baseline in achieving whatever it was, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 best practice goals, if we, if we went from where our baseline was to you know, whatever the optimal should be, how long would it be before we actually saw benefits in uh, in uh, diabetes-related heart attack or diabetes-related stroke or diabetes-related eye disease, diabetic retinopathy or diabetic-related kidney disease. And, and so uh, when we started uh, amongst our wonderful men and women in, in community practice, 
um, only about, there was somewhere between two and 3% of our 30,000 type two diabetics that actually had every one of the expected uh, best practice metrics achieved. So we, you know, we thought we were doing really well, but we found out we, we weren't. And, and part of their innovation goal, which they self-imposed, was to move that up. And, and, and we, we, we kind of, we got about 99%, slightly over 99% of, our, of all of our type 2 diabetics to have, you know, have almost all of those metrics achieved. Now, there were contraindications for some of the metrics in some of the diabetics, for instance, who were older with heart disease and what have you, in, in terms of where A1C should be uh, and other of the metrics. But we found out that when we optimized, within three years, we had a significant decrease in, in the number of patients with heart attack, stroke, and diabetic eye, eye disease. And that, and that translated into significant decreases in the need for hospitalization. I'm, when I say significant, I mean 20 to 30% decreases in, in the, the incidence of acute care uh, uh, hospital uh, demand for those uh, diabetics. And that, that's just another concrete example of, of how, you know, how important it was uh, to just do the things that we, that we knew mm -hmm. should be done for every diabetic. Now, part of PHN, uh, Proven Health Navigator, was how you got all of those wonderful primary care physicians to actually be able to do all of the best practices uh, and not drive them crazy or not have them burn out or what have you. So, so a lot of what uh, Proven Health Navigator is was to get people in those practices to fundamentally change what they did, how they did it, and who did what for each of the patients. Uh, and that, that's really what PHN is. Mm -hmm. One of the really brilliant inflections you made was this uh, use of the all or none bundled metrics for diabetes. And whereas everyone else was measuring diabetes, uh, looking at, let's say, one factor or two factors, the control of hemoglobin A1C uh, or blood pressure control, you all decided, no, every individual with diabetes needs to have these nine or 10, whatever the number of metrics controlled. And so we're going to measure ourselves based on how well we, we uh, you know, control all of these factors in in an individual. So you don't get credit for taking care of a person with diabetes unless you nail all of them. And that was just, uh, I, again, I had never heard of that before. Um, as, as you were saying, you started out pretty low. You realized you started around 3% um, uh, and, and, you know, rapidly improved. But um, I would say that the, that's something that probably the rest of us could take a lesson from. Um, you know, one thing that's surprising about, about your, your, your proven health navigator, and I wanted to ask you about this, I've been wondering about this actually for a while is, uh, you embedded, uh, lots of, uh, people in the clinics, you embedded care managers and pharmacists, and then you had your specialists leave the Mecca of the, the hospital and, and go out to the practices on, on a rotating basis. You know, in the, I guess my question is in, in the sort of era of virtual care and, and, you know, I've been struggling with this for, for quite a few years in terms of deciding which way to go. The idea of either embedding care managers or having them virtual, 
what what led you to this to to embed them again you have you have tons of, of practices out in the community that's not like one or two you've got dozens of practices so it requires people to be there and um and, and so what what do you and do you still think that's a model that makes sense in the age of of uh, virtual care and virtual medicine well you know i had a really riveting experience when i first got to geyser i visited a, uh, a primary care physician who was practicing in a place called Snowshoe, <laughs> and and it was a it was a wonderful uh, um, young woman, uh, and she was there uh, alone uh, with a uh, with an administrative person at the front desk, and during the day that I visited her, uh, she had uh, she had well visits. She had you know youngsters uh, who had. Uh, uh, had colds, uh, and she had, uh, in the middle of the afternoon, a farmer that was brought in, um, having had a terrible, uh, accident, uh, with, uh, with a tractor. And it occurred to me, uh, that this woman had the toughest job that I'd ever seen anywhere in healthcare. <laughs> and, and and so uh, I, I we started to think about that, and I talked to the guy, a guy named Steve Pearden, who was running our community practice. Mm -hmm. And both of us came to the conclusion that uh, we we needed we needed to not only stratify our patient care, but we needed to be asking uh, people uh, to be doing different things. So, in most of our community practices, where there was more, you know, there there was it was less isolated than Snowshoe. Uh, we we basically. Uh, said let's let's try to do concierge care for the for the sickest of our patients. We could you know we could identify the 150 to 250 sickest patients in a given practice simply by looking at you know who was sickest last year because who was sickest last year generally we're going to be the highest utilizing sickest patients this year or next year and and we said. Um, if we if we embed care managers and, and we actually got our care managers from the from the payer side from the insurance company side, if we embed those care managers in in the practices and we give them primary responsibility for everything that happens to those 150 to you know 250 sickest patients, and we expect them to you know to be proactive, uh, not just on the phone, but, you know, even going out to the homes and be of the community. And, and they, they've got the information from the insurance company and they know how to use it. Then, you know, then we can, we can have the captain of the ship who is almost always the primary care physician. He, he or she can kind of manage the overall, uh, the overall uh, uh, journey of the of the ship, but they don't, you know, they don't have to take care of well folks, and then all of a sudden have to deal with a terrible industrial accident, where they don't have to do everything across the board. So there was a huge amount of of, of, uh, of reengineering that was involved in in the in the proven health navigator. Now I want to I want to return to something you mentioned before, which was the importance of uh, having a combined insurance company and provider group. And you, you repeatedly emphasize this in, in, in your book, uh, Proven Care. In fact, on, on page 27, you write, keeping the health plan was the single most important strategic decision we made. Uh, so 
my question is wh- why why was it so important this have this integrated vertical alignment of payer and provider and do you think it's still important and 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 I think you know where I'm going just to be uh you know uh, transparent with you is the big question I think the million dollar question or maybe 3.2 trillion dollar question is can um can examples like Geisinger which definitely has proven care um can it be spread to other environments, uh, does it require a, a vertical alignment of payer and provider? Do they have to be reporting up to the same CEO? And so, uh, so could you say something about that? And if it's still a critical ingredient in your mind? Well, it was a critical ingredient for us to achieve what we achieved. That's number one, and I can tell you why in just a minute. Number two, I don't know if it's scalable as as we now stand. Um, but there are a lot of experiments that are trying to do that. I mean, ACO is an experiment that's trying to do it. Uh, vertically integrated systems where hospital-centric providers are trying to create uh, their own uh, insurance companies are trying to do it. Um, a lot of what you know we're uh, focused on with uh, Health Transformation Alliance is, is actually trying to get purchaser and provider much closer aligned. So, so I, you know, the answer to the question uh, in terms of scalability still to be determined. Uh, the answer to the question, was it critical for us? Absolutely. And, and so let me tell you why. Number one, in, in general, if an insurance company uses all of its uh, all of its capabilities in looking at claims and looking at analyzing claims, they they can they can predict pretty well uh, what cohort of patients is going to need uh, what intensity of care uh, over the next uh, over the next year or two years, but they can't ensure that that's, that care is going to be given. So it's only if you take that predictive uh, set of of analytics and you combine it in real time with how the care is being given on the on the healthcare delivery side that that you can you know put the predictions into a plan uh, that actually enforces uh, a stratification and a, and a best practice for reengineering and what have you it's in real time so that's number one number two uh, in general uh, most providers feel as if um, if they do the right thing and they do better uh, health outcomes and lower total cost of care and what have you, uh, the benefit of that in terms of a business model goes to the payer and doesn't come to them. Because up until now, most of, you know, most of the aligned, uh, most of the payment is totally dependent upon units of work on the, on the provider side. What we were able to do, and, and I, I mean, I can give you concrete numbers. When we redefined how our community practice uh, was was done, and we saw these 25 to 30 percent decreases in hospitalization per thousand for our acute care need. Uh, that you know that that savings on decreased total cost of care came directly back to our insurer. But I could do the internal transfer pricing, and and there were times when you know when even within our small uh, unit, uh, we had 30 35 million dollars come across from our payer to our community practice because they had achieved all their goals. And that's, you know, that's, you know, that's pretty impressive. That's, no, it's really impressive. And so as you're uh, scaling 
so X, XG Health Solutions, uh, you're, you're taking what you've learned over years and years at Geisinger, have, having now packaged it and, and, and sharing it uh, or offering it to other providers. So is, is XG the experiment in scaling? Is, is the Health uh, Transformation Alliance a different experiment? Can you, how do you, how do you put that bigger picture together in, in your mind? I'm, I've been very, very curious about that. Well, XG is it was five years old, I think, last week or what have you, and and it was it was started. Uh, I was CEO uh, and and of Geisinger and chairman of of XG, and it was started in a uh, in a partnership between Geisinger and a wonderful private equity uh, group uh, uh, called Oak, uh, and and the and the intent basically was to take our uh, uh, our. Uh, intellectual property and our transactional abilities to do all this proven acute and proven chronic and proven health navigator and basically see if we could, you know, uh, spread it and sell it to other organizations who were either contemplating or were in the midst of a journey from volume to value. Uh, And, and it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was the major innovation engine and we decided that we would take it outside of the strategic goals, which were in Geisinger, uh, because we want to take it off of our balance sheet, basically. And, and innovation is fundamentally different than scaling, fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, what HTA is, Health Transformation Alliance, is a completely separate deal. Uh, I was recruited as vice chair uh, because of my reputation at Geisinger and what have you, but Health Transformation Alliance is now 46 self-insured companies that have committed to share data uh, on their pharma and their health services uh, uh, buying, uh, and and to uh, move both in the pharma world as well as in health services to try to create a relationship that's based on value, not volume. And and XG uh, is XG works uh, to take a lot of our care pathways, a lot of our reengineering. Uh, 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 content uh, and and transactional abilities uh, into uh, HTA uh, so that they can design what it is they want uh, when they're trying to buy uh, you know uh, in a in a much more efficient and value based way uh, and 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 we try to help the providers that are selected to be HTA providers to achieve their goals. So they're they're working. They're two different channels uh, and two different organizations. Clearly, working in somewhat different ways. But it seems to me the one uh, one thing they share in common, at least as I understand it, is and I ha- I've had the opportunity to speak to Rob Andrews, uh, who's the CEO of, of uh, HTA, um, and I think they're doing really profound work um, to, as you say, emancipate value. Uh, but the one one thing is, is at, at the core of it, they're both using uh, proven care uh, concepts and, and 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 tools. Is that is that right or? That's exactly right. I mean, we we've started. Uh, you know, whenever we aggregate, aggregate uh, potential uh, employee volume, we'll go into a market and and we'll uh, you know we'll say if we're give, if we're going to be able to increase your volume for hips and knees and and treatment of low back pain or what have you, we, we want to attack, you know, price per unit. So it's the usual, we'll give you volume, you give us discounted price per unit. But what we're trying to do with 
the, these care pathways is to adopt the Geisinger type of best practice for who gets a hip replacement, who gets a knee replacement, who gets an intervention for low back pain. And, and we've got type 2 diabetes in there as one of our original four care pathways. And, 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 the, and the concept there is, you know, we're attacking unjustified indications. We're trying to get much more stringent about who gets what. And then once, you know, once we are convinced that, you know, the indication for the procedure or the, whether it's diagnostic or therapeutic is, is, is reasonable, we're attacking unjustified variation and how that, how that episode actually is transacted. Hmm. And so, you know, it, it is, it, it's, it's based on the core uh, the core design principles of of proven acute and proven chronic. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I, I didn't realize that part of of the proven care uh, pathways and protocols was uh, figuring out the um, whether or not the the actual procedure should uh, should occur. But it sounds like that's actually baked in, as you would say, into the uh, the, the the pathway itself. Is that decision making process? If something, I'll tell you what. If something is not needed. Uh, the best way to uh, avoid problems and save money is not to do it. Yeah, that's, uh, and if we could translate that into healthcare, boy, oh boy, um, about a, a third of the cost of healthcare would decrease overnight. Um, but you know what's interesting? Actually, you reminded me that conversation I had with Rob Andrews. Uh, he shared something with me, which a uh, stat, which I was startled at, which was that uh, uh, between just uh, four four procedures or four uh, conditions, hips. Uh, knees, uh, back surgery, and diabetes, those four make up something like 40% uh, percent or more of cost, healthcare costs for employers. So uh, by reducing unnecessary surgery and procedures and optimizing care in those four, you really could save quite a bit of money and, and improve care tremendously. Absolutely, no question about it, which is why we chose those as our initial, uh, our, our initial use cases. Now, did you did you also attack um, in in the book? There, there were actually towards the end of the book. There, you do have a chapter on on at least one or two on pharmacy and biologics. So, did you? And clearly, uh, as we know today, uh, pharmaceutical costs make up somewhere around twenty to thirty percent of total healthcare costs, and and they're they're rising compared to the rest of healthcare costs, which uh, seems to be stabilizing, uh, uh, relatively speaking. So. Did you see that as a major issue even, uh, you know, back uh, five, 10 years ago, or is that something that's really emerged more as a big issue right now, the, the pharmacy costs? No, no. As I, as I said, you know, the first, you know, the first concrete example of reengineering uh, was, was EPO. So that goes way back. But, but as you, you know, as you see more and more of, of extremely effective, but extremely expensive biologicals, uh, and, you know, treatment of hepatitis C is a perfect example. Uh, you know, we believe, we believe that there are certain market-based uh, attacks on pricing which will occur. Uh, obviously, as you get more and more options for the treatment of hepatitis C, there's going to be more and more competition. The market will take care of price per unit. But what I believe uh, over a period of time, but what, what we were trying to do at Geisinger was to get much more stringent on how the biologics were used and on whom they were used and how long they would be used. And a good example is, uh, is treatment of psoriasis. I mean, we, we found out early on that a significant number of our patients who are getting very effective but extraordinarily high-priced biological treatment of psoriasis 
could it could be even you know even more simply treated and certainly more uh, more efficiently treated with a light box exposure to a light box mm-hmm. on a regular basis. But our insurance company was willing to pay the forty to fifty thousand bucks a year for the biologicals. But they, you know, but but if somebody wanted to get a light box, they had to take four to five thousand bucks out of their own pocket. That's ridiculous. Hmm. So so you know we and and you can't expect everybody to get a light box. So we had to figure out how to re-engineer our care. You know how to how to be able to determine which of the patients with psoriasis were appropriate for the light box, and then we had to change the financial incentives. But that's another that's another really good example. Mm-hmm. That hasn't been scaled yet to. Uh, to uh, HTA, but at some point we're we're going to attack you know the the you know the indiscriminate use of very effective but very high priced biologicals. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, what if you could imagine what good would look like in let's say five to seven years, uh, and snap your fingers and make it happen for healthcare in America? Do you have do you have some high level vision of that or some criteria that you would say this is what healthcare should look like well i you know i try not I, I i try to be pretty concrete because i think most progress is incremental there are very few epiphanies and most epiphanies have real collateral downsides <laughs> and uh, i think but but for instance i as we go we being health transformation alliance and 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 uh, xg as we go into various markets, um, I know right now in a number of markets that if as many of our HTA employees who have type 2 diabetes as possible, if they go to certain of our HTA providers, mm-hmm. uh, I, will give them, I will give them a much higher probability uh, of uh, life without a heart attack, life without a stroke, life without diabetic retinopathy. And I will give the purchasers, who are, you know, mainly their their employers. I will give them a twenty-five to thirty percent decrease in acute care expenses. <laughs> wow. So if I can, so if I can show that in a couple of markets, um, and then then what I want to do is is to have you know more participation. Mm-hmm. Uh, in you know in and more demand for the the right kind of care you know hitting as many of those nine ten or eleven bogies as possible for every diabetic mm-hmm. and, and I'd love to have the systems that can do that thrive and the systems that can't do that wither because I think there have to be winners and losers and my suspicion is you know since you know since almost all of these systems are are, are you know they have good intent they may not have the capability but good intent the, the systems will understand that they've got to you know they got to provide this high quality lower cost much more efficient care or or they're going to be out of business and uh, so that's you know that's kind of my incremental fantasy here well, I, well it sounds to me it sounds like the future looks like more proven care and less of non-proven care <laughs> yeah, and again, there's always interesting ways of demagoguing this stuff, and and you know the the classic way of demagoguing it is 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 to say, well, you know, we're pushing everybody into algorithms mm-hmm. and what, and that's not the case. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's a that's a real false polarity because you can do best practice and allow for individual variation. It's just you know it's it's just that the variation 
it, it has to be within a corridor of, of common sense. Right. Uh, and, and, and it has to be, it has to be in a way uh, justified with, you know, with colleagues who are really up to date, you know, working, you know, working together to, to see what should change and how things should move forward. Yeah, I, I really, I really um, admire that about what you're doing with uh, the Health Transformation Alliance. It sounds like you're bringing the protocols and algorithms, and at the same time, you're saying if you, if you, if your local clinicians have a better way to do this and they could demonstrate that, then you know we want to see that, and we want to learn from it. Absolutely, no question about it. And and again, you know, we're we're trying. We're going to start out with what is by definition a narrower network. Mm-hmm. But we 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 are assuming that uh, that the network gets less narrow as more people understand uh, that if they go to you know provider A they'll have better outcome with type two diabetes than if they go to provider B and we think that provider B unless you know unless they're you know completely uh, inanimate uh, they're they're going to figure out how to become more like provider A so that the network actually gets you know gets wider. Mm-hmm. What. Um... You know, you've you've talked a, a bit about in our correspondence um, about the issue of failing and learning. And I was actually surprised in your correspondence to me that you said I continue to fail um, and I continue to learn from it. I'm, uh, you know, I, I mean, given everything I've seen you do over your career and uh, at Geisinger and and now uh, at XG and HTA, I, I'm. Uh, surprised to hear of a failure, and but I'm curious: uh, is there something that you think we can learn from uh, a so-called perceived failure of yours, and and or or are there lessons you're currently learning that you could share with us? Well, I, I mean, I I got lots of I got lots of examples of failure. One one of my one of my most interesting examples was uh, early on when we were uh, trying to re, redesign our. Uh, our caregiving for <clears throat> for patients and families who are dealing with aut- autism. Uh, we had, you know, we had a couple of really terrific autism experts uh, who were, as usual, they were kind of in the in the what I call the uh, the the big house. Uh, they were associated with at that time our biggest uh, core facility, Geisinger Medical Center, and there was a year and a half waiting time for a first visit. Well, you can imagine. If a family's got a child and, and, and they're worried about autism, you know, waiting around for a year and a half <laughs> to see somebody is just not acceptable. And so we had a, a, a number of people who were interested in you know, autism and on both the clinical side as well as the research side. And we, you know, we redesigned uh, our approach to it. And, uh, and, and the first time we redesigned it, uh, I, I had the sociology wrong. I, di- I did not have... Uh, our autism uh, experts lead the way, and even though probably a lot of the redesign was was correct, unless you have your key leaders advocating for the change, it doesn't happen. And and we subsequently, you know, we've subsequently redesigned and, and gotten a year and a half down to an incredibly short wait. But but basically, I I learned that you know how you how you do the sociology for change. Is 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 actually even more important than the substance of the change, uh, and I and I learned a, a huge amount a huge amount mm-hmm. from that. The other thing the other thing uh, that you know that I that I've learned uh, over the years is is that leadership makes a huge difference, and I, I 
Uh, I've gone into other states uh, when I was at Geisinger, and I've gone into other uh, systems, and we've shown, in fact, that we could get within a very short period of time the same benefit uh, in, uh, in optimizing chronic disease management, decreasing hospitalizations per thousand. Uh, but when, when leadership changes at the top, uh, you know, the stickiness of, the, of the, all the changes throughout the system are, are really affected. Uh, so, you know, leadership uh, really, really matters. And the third thing uh, that I've learned uh, from failure is you can have a great mission, uh, you can have a great um, uh, idea uh, that, that benefits mankind, but if you don't have a sustainable business model to go with it, it's not going to work or it's not going to, it's not going to, it's not going to continue I, because you've got to have a sustainable business model that's connected, for instance, with this volume to value transformation, or it's, it's just, it's just going to wither. Those are really, those are three wonderful pearls. I'm, 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 I'm I've written them down and I'm going to uh, think about those. What, um, you, you know, one of the, and I want to just come back to this issue. One of the, um, major, I think, uh, critiques that have been leveled, not at Geisinger, but I think at, at XG or, or uh, you know, and other organizations, uh, the few that are, are as advanced as you are in the value-based world or as Geisinger is, is this issue of, as you put it, the scaling challenge the and the spread and scaling challenge. So just in, in brief, where, where do you think we are with that? What do you, what do you, what are your hopes and, and uh, what do you, what do you think the chances of really scaling this? Are there um, certain obstacles that if, if overcome, you think would allow for the scalability? Well, first of all, I, again, I don't, I think, I think most everything in our society uh, is, is, uh, is pretty, uh, uh, it, it's pretty uh, uh, chaotic in terms of moving from A to B. Um, uh, and, and I think all you have to do is look at ACA and post ACA and, you know, the, the changes in the public payer now, particularly what's happening with Medicaid and, and a lot of the, you know, the backing off from, uh, from commitment to bundles and Medicare. But, but, but I, think, I think there's still an understanding, and, 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 and Alex Azar shares this. I, I know Alex. He's a good guy. Um, uh, but, you know, there's an understanding that we're on, I believe, an immutable path moving from volume and, and, and payment for volume to value and outcome. And so I, I think, you know, I think, I think you need, you need to believe that otherwise you, you're, you're just not, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to go from, you know, from where, you know, where most places are to where Geisinger is now. So that's, that's number one. Um, I think, I think number two, the uh, purchasers, uh, particularly the large employers, uh, are taking a, uh, a much different stance towards their employees. They, they are committed to their employees. They know that recruitment and retention depends uh, on their indirect benefits, i.e. health care. They understand that productivity is directly related to the health status of their employees. The average duration of the employee for our HTA membership is 12 years. And so, you know, it wasn't so long ago that a lot of the HR folks 
in these big companies were fantasizing just giving their employees a check once a year, 8,000 bucks, 10,000, whatever it was. And, and you guys just go out on the market and figure out, you know, your own health, you know, your own health insurance. And the HTA and, and Amazon and, and JP Morgan and, uh, and Berkshire Hathaway and, and uh, PBGH, Pacific Business Group on Health, all of these efforts now are the, are the employer as the purchaser, deciding to work with their employees to determine what is it that's going to give the best health status over time. And that's, that isn't, I mean, despite all the, you know, the political changes and the hubbub in Washington, what have you, I think that's, I think that's going to be consistent. I don't think it's going to go away. So, you know, again, scaling is a big deal. Some things will work in one market. Other things will work in another market. But I, I, think, I think we'll move in a relatively chaotic way in the right direction. But, you know, in this country, it's always going to be chaotic. <laughs> so last question. Um, I asked this of, of uh, all, all my guests on this podcast. What was the best piece of advice you were ever given? Well, I think, you know, I, for, for me, it's always, always, always think about always to think about the patient or the, the member, always think about the individual that you're responsible to and, 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 and think about whatever decision you're making, what is the effect on, on, on the individual that you're caring for or responsible to, uh, or think about the, the member who's getting the, you know, getting the insurance coverage. And that, that, always, that always tends to keep you on the right corridor. That's great advice. That's perfect advice to, and especially to end the the, the show with. So, so Dr. Glenn Steele, I, I, uh, Dr. Steele, I, I want to thank you so much. Uh, again, I've been uh, following you and Geisinger for years, and uh, just looking to you, uh, offer innovation and ideas. And uh, I just want to say to our listeners, if uh, if you haven't read uh, Dr. Steele's book that he co-wrote with Dr. Feinberg uh, uh, from Geisinger, I would recommend it. Um, it's uh, it's a great read. I uh, came away even after following Geisinger for years and talking with your colleagues at XG and HTA still came away with some new ideas and some inspiration. So I would highly recommend it. And, and Dr. Steele, in my mind, I, I just have to tell you this. Um, when I look at uh, healthcare over the last uh, 30 years or so, I, I would put you in a small pantheon of maybe half a dozen people who I think have really made a very, very positive inflection in American healthcare. I mean, Don Berwick, uh, maybe Lee Sachs from Advocate, John Toussaint, uh, Toby Cosgrove, Gary Kaplan, um, and you um, really have, I think, changed American healthcare over the past, uh, you know, couple of dozen years. And so I uh, just want to take my hat off to you. It's such a privilege being able to talk to you after reading your work and seeing your work and studying your work and emulating your work for so many years. So just want to thank you so much for, for taking your precious time to uh, speak with me and to be on this podcast. My pleasure, Zev. Appreciate it. Great. And to all the listeners, again, I just uh, always want to recognize and thank you for those of you, especially who are doing the hard work every day of taking care of patients and those of you who are supporting them and taking care of patients. I hope this has been as stimulating and catalyzing for you as it has been for me. And until uh, next time, be well.